Osiris. Hey guys, before we go beyond the pond, we are very excited to tell you about our sponsor for this week. The holidays are right around the corner. What do you get for the fish fan who has everything? Aside from the war on drugs lost in the dream on vinyl? Nah, you get them ice cream. If you guys know anything about this podcast, you know that we care about three things. The song Mercury, the 1969 baseball season, and ice cream. That's why we're very excited to discuss Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Ben and Jerry's has collaborated with Fish and the Water Wheel Foundation to create a limited flavor. It's ice cream. A caramel malt ice cream with almond toffee pieces, fudge fish, and a caramel swirl. The packaging for the ice cream and a very limited t-shirt were designed by Jim Pollock. And a portion of the proceeds for the ice cream and all of the proceeds for the t-shirts were donated to the Water Wheel Foundation. The ice cream and the teas can be ordered at store.benjerry.com. If you use the promo code OSIRIS, it's O-S-I-R-I-S, you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. There's also a special curveball fish food slash water wheel tea week that was created for the canceled festival that can be purchased online. Now let's go beyond the pond. Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 49 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast which Brian and myself generally utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are diehard Fish fans. Sometimes we realize the problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. They only listen to fish. They can recount set lists and statistics and turn set lists and fish inside out. But when it comes to talking about other bands, they get kind of blank faced and we want to do something about that. Absolutely. And here we are in episode 49, just shy of our 50th episode, about to talk about a jam from a year that we have somehow missed in the first 49 episodes of Beyond the Pond. But we promise we will uh, rectify this going forward. We're going to talk here about the Run Like an Antelope from June 24th, 1994 at the Marat Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana. We're very, very excited about this jam. I think it's a quite an underrated uh, jam within Fish's history and in one of the greatest months of their history. I think we got a great episode here for you guys. And some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include aggressive arrogance, being a jerk, 
versus just being young and on fire, jamming a songwriting for the future, and we used to love this song. And on that note, let's get to the fish. Like we were saying at the top, somehow this is our first episode dedicated to not just a 1994 jam, but a June 1994 jam. Before we go any further, we would like to both apologize and just rectify the fact that we are trying to do right by everyone right now. Yeah, aside from a very, very brief exploration of June 11, 1994 in a Pandora episode, this is the first we've had dedicated to a... 1994 jam and really this is the epitome of how fish was using run like an antelope in 1994 but it kind of refrains from getting too cute or showy with the jamming it's uh, the longest version of that song from that year several portions of straight ahead rock and roll type two style that peaks with the glorious down with disease jam absolutely and in addition to that down with disease jam there's a clear first tube jam five years ahead of its debut The second portion of that song where Mike and Trey kind of modulate into more of a major key and it's very blissful and uplifting, you hear that here in this early part of the Run Like an Antelope Jam. You'll hear this very, very specifically. And the fact that the band had this kind of foresight is really just further proof of how high they were on. Uh, in 1994. It's interesting also, this has a notably quiet intro to this song, and then you practically have to strain to hear it on the audience recording, but then it gets followed by the huge power course to kick off the jam. It's almost like uh, Phil Lesh would do in the late 70s with the song The Other One, the huge bass roll to kick it off, kind of similar to that. And really, while the antelope is the main attraction here, it's a seriously fun show from top to bottom. It even has a acoustic versions of Four Heart and Cavern that are sort of inaudible on the audience tape. An early version is simple. It's in an entirely different key and tempo than the version that we know and love today. It's almost kind of creepy sounding. Yeah, you know, and it's really hard to complain about a set two that has a 20-minute antelope, a Haley's, and a Sanity. It's also got a curtain and an insane llama, even if each of those songs only gets a perfunctory reading. It's also of note, and this is keeping with the themes of June 1994, has a very, very, very nice first set, Reba. So in terms of the significance of the show and uh, run in general, let's just say that it's not a big surprise, but this band was seriously feeling themselves in June of 1994. Yes. And this is sort of the midway point of a relentless tour cycle that started in April with the release of Hoist, Kept on going up until July 16, 1994, the legendary hometown Sugarbush show. Like, there was really no spring tour, summer tour, differentiation. This is just nonstop tour, save a short break they took from May 29th to June 9th. I mean, 
They just put out a commercial-sounding album with a big-name producer and Paul Fox, who was famous for producing somewhat better-known acts like 10,000 Maniacs, XTC's Oranges and Lemons, uh, The Sugar Cubes, that was Bjork's old band, and also in 1994, They Might Be Giants, John Henry, which I completely love. They just made a video. They wanted to make some fucking money. <laughs> and although the fan base didn't know it at the time, because tour routing has to usually be done one year to nine months in advance, Fish knew in their heart of hearts that they were going to replay Madison Square Garden in December. So summer 1994, it's confidence bordering on arrogance. Yeah, and I have... um. I did a listening project back in 2015 where I listened to every spring and summer show from 92, 93, 94, and 95, all on their anniversaries. It was kind of insane, but I didn't have a kid at the time, and I was working kind of a thoughtless desk job for a little period of time, so I had a lot of time on my hands. Wait, you're saying that not having a kid gives you more free time? Oh my God, right? Wow. Who'd have thought? But what I can what I can tell you is, and I mean, I would encourage any of our listeners to go back and listen to even like the shows from 92, 93 spring tour that get absolutely no love because there's a lot of great stuff in like April, both of those years. And in late April, early May 1994, you hear kind of a shift towards uh, uh, jamming. There's a show in late April from, I believe, Charlotte that really, really speaks to where the band was going. But... You can really hear this tour, and in a lot of cases, the band's career shift in a big way around June 11th, 1994, that famed show from Red Rocks. Uh, This came 10 months after their first show at the venue, which is another legendary show. And uh, this show is like a greatest hits type of show. Uh, It seemed to push the band in a completely new direction and reinforce uh, to them, as well as their audience, but I think really importantly to them, how on top of their game they were in addition to this june 94 and summer i guess i should say june july 94 that that period in time is home to the legendary game game hoist show from june 26 1994 another full game game henge set in massachusetts at great woods on july 8th 94 the oj show from june uh, 17th 94 in milwaukee the Big Birch Mashup Madness from July 13th, 1994. The aforementioned Ju- July 16th, 1994 show that uh, has a quite literally screaming antelope and a legendary harpua. Lots and lots of segues. And also June 22nd, 1994, Live Fish 10, which showcased how seamlessly the band could blend their songs together in that second set. Yeah, what uh, Fish recently did... And Walnut Creek this summer with the Jimalope is sort of summer 1994 in miniature. And also, for some reason, they played Yerushalayim five times this summer, which, okay. And uh, <laughs> one final note, June 1994 is kind of akin to December 1995 in that it's probably the best way for any new fan to get into the band. Fish is at their funniest zaniest, tightest, and probably the best representations of where the band grew for the first 12 years of their career. Yeah, for me at least, um, you know, I moved on from these tours uh, as I became a bigger fan and uh, moved on to their more nuanced periods. 97, 98, 99, 2000, kind of 2003 as well, and then have been listening to a lot of 3.0 obviously just because it's so um, immediate in the moment, but you know, 
when you return to June 94, especially, you realize how much there's overlooked in these kind of little steps forward within the band. Um, all of these shows display a band at the peak of their powers before any of the darkness would settle in five, six years later. It's as if they're all just woefully ignorant of what's to come and what else they can accomplish musically. It's just like they're they're in this like in the pocket zone of what it really means to be fish. It's true youthful bliss. And it's really a tour that if you haven't returned to, or if you don't return to regularly, we're hoping that this uh, Run Like an Antelope segment that we're going to play here really will inspire you to. Bill Clinton was in office. All these guys are 29, just about to turn 30. And the Montreal Expos were playing really, really, really awesome that summer. <laughs> Didn't work out so well, unfortunately. However, let's listen to three to five minutes of the Run Like an Antelope from... June 24, 1994, from the Murat Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana.
Alright guys, we hope that you enjoyed that extended segment of the Run Like an Antelope Jam from June 24th, 1994 at the famous Murat Theater in Indianapolis. And I hope that you guys appreciate and understand that we did not cover that other Murat Jam. So, segment one here. We're going to talk about aggressive arrogance. We're kind of splitting this idea of aggressive arrogance up into two sections here because the band was at just such a youthful high, kind of an aggressively arrogant period in their career. They could really do no wrong, and they kind of knew it. So on the one hand, you've got this idea of kind of being a jerk. You know, you're so young, you're so ignorant, uh, you have no idea of kind of the greater ramifications of life, and you are just playing music as hard and aggressively in your mindset as possible. And you heard that a lot throughout June 1994. Trust me, I love so much of it. But there is a part of that era that um, just sounds very self-indulgent and very zany in like the fishiest way possible. So the band I'm going to discuss here and the uh, song and record I'm going to discuss here comes right around this era, right around the June 94 era. Um, and that is Pavement. We're going to talk about the song Rattled by the Rush off the album Wowie Zowie. So Pavement is perhaps the most iconic 90s band there is. And the further that we get from that really weird decade, a decade that seems so much more bizarre, the way it unfolded and the things that happened and the way that we perceive the world, the farther we get from it, um, the more this band sounds like that era. Seriously, though, in the 90s, a president was impeached for having an affair. Seriously, just think about that. So Trey is a known fan of Pavement, and the band covered the song Gold Sounds off the band off of Pavement's 1994 record Crooked Rain, Crooked, Crooked Rain at the July 21st, 1999 gig in Burgettstown, Pennsylvania. Now, it's not the best fish cover ever, and even Fish's slop couldn't quite match Pavement's, but it was charming nonetheless. And if you peep at that cover, you should definitely stick around for the monster simple Into My Left Toe jam that is the most 1990 thing that the band played all year. But we're not here to talk about Crooked Rain. We're here to talk about their 1995 sprawling mess of a masterpiece, Wowie Zowie. Recorded in Memphis, this is perhaps the most ambitious album that the band ever made, and the moment where their label Matador was expecting them to blow up. What this record is, more than anything, is a wonderful stew of youthful arrogance, artistic expansiveness, marijuana, and the extremes of 90s slackerdom pushed far beyond their perceived logical extremes. For anyone who'd followed the band, it was less a misdirection than a return to form to the band's earliest days when experimentation and zany songwriting was their M.O. According to Malcolmus, Stephen Malcolmus, the lead singer-songwriter of Pavement, the album was a result of two things, marijuana and the fact and the fact that all the songs sounded like hits to him. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that, that idea. <laughs> That's actually taken from, I just want to cut in for one sec. If you yeah. can find a copy of the Pavement DVD, Slow Century, that's where that quote comes from. And I think it's, for some odd reason, all the interviews that Steve Malcolm is were filmed inside like a sauna where he's like wearing a loincloth in a sauna, just talking about the band's <laughs> career, like interspersed with live footage. It's pretty great. So the album's title was a nod to Gary Young, their first drummer, and Frank Zappa. The other title tossed around 
Uh, Dick Sucking Fool at Pussy Licking School. I think Wowie Zowie was probably the better title. So the record debuted to mixed, mixed reviews as one would expect, but it's really grown over the last 20 plus years as something of a favorite amongst true pavement diehards. It shows the band's range and their ability to push beyond their norms creatively. While Crooked Rain might be the most pavementy record, Wowie Zowie is probably their artistic masterpiece. The sentiment of the record lasted through the supporting tour, where the band opted against playing out setless, instead jamming through drunken, drug-infused hazes. Seriously, listen to the song Half a Canyon, Half a Canyon, and imagine where the band was able to take songs like this during the era. Some of these performances of note came at the Lollapalooza Music Festival and were received with, as you can probably imagine, less than enthusiastic responses from the crowd. Dave, I know that this is a favorite record of yours. Is there anything you'd like to add to this? I mean, Wow is Out is fantastic. It's definitely, it's got a lot of silly filler, but I would say the song Grounded is probably my favorite pavement song of all time. Father to a Sister's Thought isn't that far off. That's gorgeous country with some pedal steel. It's kind of just a record that you just put on and you sit there and you kind of marvel at all the weirdness and loose ends that are going on because... There are a lot of loose ends. And sort of the next record, Bright in the Corners, would tighten things up a little bit. I think Matador Records probably would have rather that Bright in the Corners came after Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, instead of Wowie Zowie. I think Wowie Zowie would have gotten like two and a half stars from Rolling Stone, and two and a half stars from Rolling Stone could kind of hurt you commercially back in 1996. Totally. But yeah, I agree. It's a great record. It takes you on a big journey um, just across a musical soundscape. So let's go ahead. Let's listen to Rattled by the Rush by Pavement off of Wowie Zowie. some point in the future there's always talk about doing a pavement deep dive Malcolm's deep dive type episode and it's something we might have to address in the not too distant future but it's another conversation for another day in terms of aggressive arrogance I'm going to talk about a British band called Foles F-O-A-L-S like the baby horse and the song we're going to play is Inhaler off of their Holy Fire album so to me, Foles is kind of the epitome of a young, cocky British band fronted by the always chatty Giannis Philippakis. And they play 
kind of a math rocky brand of British dance rock driven by a really crack rhythm section and Philip Bacchus' vocals, which are sometimes highly reminiscent of Robert Smith of The Cure. So really, Foles, on their first record, they started out as a particularly prodigious dance punk band, but with their second album, Total Life Forever, exhibited depths of songwriting and layered production that few would have initially thought them capable of. And that's actually still my favorite Foles album. And this is funny because this is a band, the guitar lines, that kind of seem to bend and refract like lasers on glass. And the guitarists, they hold their guitars very high, and it seems like the guitar straps are going to strangle them around their necks. And uh, But what earns them entry here is that by their third album, Holy Fire, they seem to know that they were hot shit, and that kind of manifests itself on that record. They got Alan Mulder and Flood to produce, which is what all British bands do when they want to seem uh, both arena-ready and artsy at the same time. They started the album with an instrumental called Prelude, and starting your album with instrumental is something that cocky British bands always do. Think of Interpol and the song Untitled kicking off uh, Turn on the Bright Lights. And yeah, I know Interpol aren't British, but kind of what their sound and carry themselves are, uh, how they carry themselves, they kind of are the closest thing to being British with not being British. And then after Prelude, you get the first single, which is Inhaler. It's got a cheeky falsetto singing that explodes into a huge distorted chorus and the video had uh, extreme skateboarding and a weird dancing and all this stuff that says to the watcher and the listener, we have arrived. This record was going to be the one to put Foles over the fucking top. And it basically did. Because uh, the new Musical Express, the NME, named Inhaler Song of the Year. Q Magazine said they were the live band of the year. And Holy Fire is, in fact, a very good record, as uh, was the follow-up album, What Went Down. They're on Warner Brothers. I mean, think about a legit forward-thinking British rock band on a major label nowadays. It's something that seems very 1994, but you don't get many of those in 2018. So foals are to be applauded for that. So let's listen to the song Inhaler off of the Holy Fire record.
right, guys. Hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Before we go any further, we wanted to remind you of our sponsor for this week, Ben and Jerry's. It's ice cream. If you go to store.benjerry.com, you can order It's Ice Cream along with a special Jim Pollock t-shirt. Portions of the proceeds for the ice cream and all of the proceeds for the t-shirts are donated to the Water Wheel Foundation. So you will be falling on the ice deliciously. <laughs> a reminder, use promo code OSIRIS, that's O-S-I-R-S, and you can get free shipping on all orders over $50 for the rest of 2018. I know what I'm ordering for my wife for Christmas. Yeah, if I could just say one thing, I've been eating Ben & Jerry's my entire life, and I would take a pint of Cherry Garcia over just about any artisanal ice cream in my neighborhood you can name. And it's ice cream is no different it's really really good stuff and we're excited to be partnering with ben and jerry's here to uh support a really fantastic cause with that let's get back to the show Time for some new album recommendations. Now, quick insight here to be on the pond. Um, this episode is coming out in early November. Um, it was supposed to be recorded for an early October release, but we had some serious technical difficulties. We spent about three hours trying to record this one Friday night in late September, and um, just couldn't happen. We uh, we were not able to record, so we put it on the uh, back burner for after fall tour. So these records came out in September that we're talking about, but they are so good that we decided to hang on to them because we feel like uh, both of them deserve our recommendations. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is Lowe's Double Negative. Double negative. So that's Low Double Negative. This is probably my second favorite record of 2018. Um, it's around the time I need to start making that list. We've got our top albums episode coming out here in a few weeks. Um, but as of right now, this is probably my favorite, my second favorite record of the year. My top two, while not ironclad, are pretty well set in stone here in late 2018, as uh, September had joined early June as what I would consider the strongest release period of the year. So Low is a long-running slow-core co- slow trio from Duluth, Minnesota. And the album Double, Double Negative is their 12th record and a clear response to the disaster of a fucking country that we currently live in. Uh, in a lead-up interview of the record's release, guitar and vocalist Alan Sparhawk said that the Trump administration had led him to question humanity, logic, and modern society. The record really, really responds to that in, in an incredible way. It's a 50-minute masterpiece, a fluid, flowing, thematic, and gorgeous and devastating record that sounds like a collection of songs dying in, the fr- in front of your eyes. Produced by B.J. Burton, who produced Bon Iver's 2016 22 A Million, it has a similar effect to that record as well as Radiohead's Kid A in that it reinvents your thought process towards the band in the moment. Building from their 2015 record Ones and Sixes, which was also produced by Burton, this is even more minimalistic. 
it's really rare. I think you guys, our listeners, are you know, you guys are uh, perceptive enough to understand this. It's really rare that a band shows you a new look twelve albums into their career, and it's even more rare that this look, this new look, works. A lot of times, bands will shift gears and it just doesn't feel right. Um, this is a vast artistic accomplishment and a record that should be heard by anyone who enjoyed the following episodes by us. Episode 4, MSG Carini. 6, Fukuoka Twist. 7, Jones Beach Bowie. 11, the MSG, a song I heard the ocean sing, uh, that segment of the that episode. 19, Knoxville Mikes. 22, MSG Ghost. 29, Nassau Piper. 30 Virginia Beach Birds and 37 Walnut Creek Gym. So, really recommend Lowe's Double Negative, one of my favorite records of the year thus far. Dave, what do you got for us? First of all, I agree that Low Record is fantastic. Not something you just put on for fun, but no. in terms of an in immersive, if somewhat unsettling listening experience, it's extremely, extremely good. So, what I have is an album from a band called 111 Heavy. It's called Everything's Better. So this is a new project from uh, James Jackson Toth, who uh, goes by the nom de rock and roll Wooden Wand, who we've talked about before on the podcast and like a lot. And Nick Mitchell, I think Mayato, the extremely wordy but very good Demorados Soldados de Ventura. And I should spell that out so you can find them on Bandcamp because I know you'll want to. It's a D-E-S-M-A-D-R-A-D-O-S-S-O-L-D-A-D-O-S de Ventura. So this band also contains such luminaries like Hans Chu, who's uh, the keyboardist for his Golden Messenger, and Steve Gunn also has some great solo records. Dan Brown, who plays bass in Royal Trucks, and Ryan Jewell, who I think helms the drums for uh, Chris Forsythe and the Solar Motel Band. So this falls under the category of weird cosmic Americana. Think the Grateful Dead, think the band, and uh, Peter Stanfield's Holy Mole Rounders, all kind of chopped up through like an 80s college rock jangle wood chipper. And this is music, it's jangly and enthusiastic, it's got a lot of swing. And there's also a tendency to steer songs into what sounds like it's going to be a hot other one jam. I think this happens at least twice and kind of gives you a taste of what these guys do on stage. And I know uh, they tend to be popular amongst folks who listen to the awesome freeform radio station WFMU. And I know um, that Jesse Jarno, who uh, we discussed, likes them too. I think they were recently featured on his Alternate Roots podcast. So if you're listening to Beyond the Pond, this is a band you are definitely going to want to check out. 111 Heavy, everything's better. All right, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed some of those new records that we discussed and hope that they are in your earbuds here shortly. So our second segment, focusing on aggressive arrogance. In addition to kind of being self-indulgent jerks during part of Summer 94, and we say that with love. Okay, don't add us about this. Uh, Fish was also very much young and very much on fire. We're going to talk about two groups here that uh, experienced similar peaks in a young age. I am going to talk about one of my favorite records of the decade and one of my favorite bands the last 10 years, Vampire Weekend, song Diane Young off of the album Modern Vampires of the Weekend. 
Now, when discussing bands who are young and on fire, there's perhaps no better band from the last 10 years to describe this sentiment than Vampire Weekend. Famous before they ever had a chance to evolve, yet really they came out of the womb essentially fully formed. They used their immediate momentum to build with arrogance and confidence in a manner unseen by most indie rock bands. Bookended by the lyrical and songwriting masterpieces of Ezra Koenig, and the sonic experimentations and production brilliance of Rostam. They are further complemented by their bassist, Chris Bio, and their drummer extraordinaire and noted fish fanatic, Chris Thompson. The band formed the Lillywhite Liberal Enclave of Columbia University and began playing in 2006. They bonded over a shared love of punk rock and African music and built a sonic foundation off of that. A tour with the Dirty Projectors inspired them to continue incorporating more worldly music into their sound, and their self-titled debut was released in 2008 to near-universal acclaim and is dotted by some of their earliest gems, A-Punk, Oxford Comma, Cape Cod, Quasa Quasa, M79, and Campus. This record was everywhere in the spring and summer of 2008. And this being my last semester of college, my first summer of adulthood, it represented essentially everything I was experiencing in the moment. This was one of those records that you loved until you hated it. By the time 2009 rolled around, I and a lot of other people were ready to call it quits with Vampire Weekend. In early 2010, they released their follow-up, Contra, which hugged their sound with such deliberateness that it was a clear statement to everyone who doubted slash hated them. When this record came out, I hated it. Hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it also came out during the coldest winter I've ever experienced in Korea. It was like a January 6th release. I don't know why they did that, but they did. But by summer 2010, when I was back in America, traveling around the Northeast, going to fish shows, it clicked in such a way that it became one of my favorite records of 2010 and is still one of my favorite records of the decade. Horchata. Taxi Cab, Run, Giving Up the Gun, Diplomat Son, all added to their growing catalog of classics of classics, and displayed a further maturation of their sound. In 2013, they released their best record, Modern Vampires of the City, my favorite record of 2013 and one of my top 10 favorite records of the decade. At this point, I was 28, living in Korea, and I related to literally everything that they had written about in this record. At this point, their entire career had mirrored my entire post-collegiate life. I mean, they even referenced Anchor Watt in this record, where I'd traveled to just six months later. This was the clear last step in a trilogy of their young career. Obvious Bicycle, Unbelievers, Step, Diane Young, which we're about to play, Don't Lie, Hannah fucking Hunt, Yahey, Hudson, and Young Lion are some of the best songs that they've ever written. Were it not for Everlasting Arms, Fingerback, and Worship You, that segment midway through the record, this record would be perfect. Modern Vampires of the City. You like Everlasting Arms? I do not. (laughs) Sorry. This album is akin to Fish in June 1994. Young and on fire. The band could essentially do no wrong. And the sentiment is perfectly summarized in the record's first single, Diane Young, read Diane Young, 
which is as much a plea for clinging to youthful ambitions as it is for pushing into old age with the empathy that drove you in your youth. As of right now, Vampire Weekend is set to have an album released in early 2019. This has been pushed back multiple times. I think that we talked about there being a Vampire Vampire Weekend release uh, in our um, halfway 2017 episode where we ranked our favorite albums of that year so far. Yeah. Um, but it's been pushed back and pushed back, and it might be due in part to Rostam leaving the band in 2016 to pursue a solo career. Whatever happens with the band next, the hope is that they continue to build from their earliest success. I know that I can't wait to grow old with them. Dave, is there anything you have to, to add to this, or should we play Dying Young? Well, yeah, we can play Dying Young, but you know, I agree. That's one of the best albums of 2013. That's their best record. I have a love Everlasting Arms, but Hannah Hunt, is that's probably the best song of Vampire Weekend's career. And when that piano comes in, it turns me to mush every time. Yes. The piano... Ezra's follow, vocal crack yeah, follow is by just the crack is the best quite good. Yeah, I don't know what's taking them so long for uh, the next Vampire Weekend record to come out. I mean, what? It's like 40 minutes of music. It's taken over six years. But certainly uh, <laughs> having Rostam out of the band puts an undue burden on on the one shoulders of Ezra Koenig. And he just became a dad too, right? I think he – yeah, right. He's he did. He did. had a kid with Rashida Jones. Let's hope that the five-year gap doesn't uh, produce, you know, a U2-esque record as we talked about with Ryan Nichols. No, right. Hopefully enough of the album was finished before he had the kids so you won't get anything like, uh, my beautiful son is so beautiful type songs, which (laughs) they have their place. That's not what I want from Vampire Weekend. No. So let's go ahead. Let's listen to a little bit of Dying Young off of Vampire Weekend's 2013 record, Modern Vampires of the City. You toss aside like a pile of leaves. I gotta find some better weeds. For about me to run around the bend when the government made just around you again. If dying young won't change your mind, baby, 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 right. going to talk about is a jazz album, a hard bop album that came out in 1965. This is Free For All, 
from Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Easily one of my favorite albums of all time. Probably my favorite jazz album of all time. So Art Blakey, for those who don't know, is an incredible drummer, most affiliated with the hard bop style of jazz. Hard bop being a term coined in the mid-1950s to describe a type of jazz that leaned heavily on rhythm and blues, gospel music, and the blues. In addition to uh, a style incorporating seemingly endless drum fills and forward propulsion with howling at the drum kit when he got going, what Art Blakey's best known for is being a band leader with the ever-rotating cast of younger musicians known as the Jazz Messengers. The Jazz Messengers ended up being a trial by fire of sorts for younger jazz musicians, the youngsters as he referred to them. Now, when they got too old, he would eventually swap them out with younger players. Kind of let Menudo in that respect. I think the Jazz Messengers had about 47 official studio albums. So let's focus on my favorite of these being Free For All, which is recorded at Rudy Van Gelder's legendary Englewood Cliff Studio in 1964, not released until 1965. So this lineup of the Jazz Messengers reads like a murderer's row of future all-time hard bop greats. You got Curtis Fuller on trombone, Freddie Hubbard on trumpet, Wayne Shorter on saxophone, Cedar Walton on piano, and Reggie Workman on bass. And each of these guys was either at or just under 30 years of age at the time. Three of them are still alive and making music, and each of them was complete fire. I mean, it's impossible to know what these guys ate before they entered the studio that day, but man, oh man, this is some relentless hard bop music, and the Wayne Shorter pen title track being amongst the most fiery compositions in mid-60s hard bop. Um, I actually played trombone all throughout high school and college, still own it, bring it out from time to time, and this is the record I would listen to prior to playing jazz concerts in college. I first heard this album in high school, and I was frankly blown away by it. And it, uh, I still continue to love it to this day. So we're going to play the title track, Free For All, from uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. All 
right, guys. We hope that you enjoyed our 49th episode here, talking about the Run Like an Antelope from the Marat Theater in Indianapolis, Indiana, June 24th, 1994. And like we said at the top, we promise more 1994 episodes coming up here in the next uh, in the next few weeks and months. We promise. We promise. Yes. So just a quick rundown of the songs that we played. These will all go up on our Spotify playlist. But Pavement, Rattled by the Rush, off of Wowie Zowie. Foles, Inhaler, off of the album Holy Fire. And then we listened to Diane Young from Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City. And Art Blakey's Free For All off of the album Free For All. So, as you know, we can be found on social media and Twitter or at underscore beyond the pond, one word. <clears throat> Our Simplecast page is beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. Like I said, we have a Beyond the Pond master playlist of songs on Spotify. It's Beyond the Pond podcast songs. We can um, usually link to it when the new episode goes up, and it's also the link is located in our Twitter bio. We are proud members of the Osiris Podcast Network at osirispod.com. And leave us an iTunes review because we will read them and it helps boost our visibility in, uh, in Apple land, as it were. Absolutely. And um, as you guys know, our goal is always publishing every other Tuesday. We've kind of gotten off of that here with the last few weeks with Fall Tour. A lot of Thursday episodes, a lot of back-to-back-to-back stuff, giving you guys a lot of content. Uh, we've got a few more uh, episodes coming out here over the next couple of weeks. Um, the next episode that's going to come out is going to be a two-parter. It's a very, very, very special episode that's going to bookend Thanksgiving. We're very excited for you guys to uh, get your hands and your ears on that. But um, we'll be back to kind of normal here as we move into December. Of course, we're going to cover Fish's uh, New Year's Eve run. Going to do our favorite albums of 2018. And then uh, jump into 2019 just as strong as ever. Coming up on our two-year anniversary here. It's pretty, pretty bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. So, on that note, I'm going to make sure my daughter hasn't injured herself as we're doing the rare afternoon recording. (laughs) And come back. Next episode will be number 50. We'll join hands. We'll go beyond the pond. Osiris.